it's easy to say one shouldn't take illegal substances and put them in one's veins. I mean, who would ever counsel you to do that? Well, what if that's the only way you can create what you create? That's a dangerous line of reasoning because everybody, every teacher and preacher and everything you've ever known says, don't go there. I mean, surely, surely you can create without screwing up your body and influencing the people around you to do the same thing. Well, I'm sorry, but uh, I've met lots of people who are extremely creative only under the most uh, deleterious of lifestyles. And that's just the way it goes. Is this uh, cause and effect? Probably not. It probably isn't because I've known enough writers and artists who were able to quit their bad habits cold and just keep working. So it's not a, not a simple question. It's not exactly a moral question either. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. As the host of Fringe FM, I've been incredibly honored the caliber of guests that we've been able to get on this show to both showcase their work and the potential futures that we as a species are focused on building. One thing that's astonished me, and yet hasn't, has been the fact that despite the guests, their fields, their focuses, be it genetics, space, human augmentation, AI, many of our past guests have been inspired, truly inspired, and become obsessed with technology thanks to the work of science fiction and science fiction authors. This is a topic that resonates with technologists, we who tried to build the future, because who better than the, the sci-fi writers predicting the far-out futures and captivating audiences can really do that and get people excited. Today, we've got one of them. We've got Joe Haldeman on the program. He's a famed American science fiction author, best known for his novel, The Forever War, The Hemingway Hoax, and Forever Peace, although he's published around 30 to date and won numerous Hugo and Nebula Awards. He's awarded the SFWA Grandmaster for Career Achievements in 2012. He's a member of the Science Fiction Hall of Fame, a member of the Authors Guild, the Writers Guild, Science Fiction Writers of America, the National Space Society, the list goes on and on and on. Many of his works, including his debut novel, War Year, and his second novel, The Forever War, were inspired by his experiences in the Vietnam War. We get into all this and more on the episode with Joe Haldeman, a legend in the field of science fiction. In today's episode, we discuss sci-fi, the evolution of, and how authorship has changed, how astronomy and a curiosity for space pushed Joe into his passion, why many authors and creatives resort to alcohol and hard drugs to create masterpieces, how to hone your craft and become world-class, and which industries Joe is excited about. And now, without further ado, I give you Joe Haldeman. Quick time out. Do you exercise or want the best from your brain and body on a daily basis? I know I do. And if you do, you should check out Onnit's top performance line of brain and body enhancing, keto, paleo, and pretty much everything friendly supplements like Alpha Brain, MCT Oil, and Total Human. Prefer a solid grass-fed whey or a double caffeinated drip to go hard? What about a powerhouse set of probiotics? They got it all and the science to back up their formulations. Plus, you can get a 10% off offer just for listeners by going to disruptors.fm 
slash onnit with two N's, O-N-N-I-T, and using coupon code disruptors at checkout. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash onnit, O-N-N-I-T, and using disruptors at checkout. They have everything that elite performers need, mentally and physically, to be at the best. Are you looking to grow yourself and your bottom line in the process? Do you need help scaling, growth hacking, and marketing, or with fundraising and introductions? If you want to 10x your business and build towards a sustainable future, be that a startup or a Fortune 500 company, I love helping businesses change the world for the better. I've been a founder, built startups and seven-figure businesses, coached and advised dozens and more, and learned my passion and purpose is pushing entrepreneurs to succeed. If you're a winner, aiming big, willing to go hard, and interested in potentially working together to up-level yourself and your business, I'd love to chat. mattward.io slash coaching for more details. And now, let's get on with the episode. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. As a prolific author, my first question for you has to be, how do you create an incredible and engaging story? Oh, usually because the bills have to be paid. (laughs) Nobody's going to come in off the street and pay them, you know? That's how I create. I think that's how most people create after the first, you know, blush of uh, of glory. Just, <laughs> it's a job. It's a really great job. But uh, if you're not able to do it, whether or not you feel like it, you're not going to make much money. Yeah. I heard Stephen King one time and he said the key to being a great writer was just writing a ridiculous amount of words every day, regardless of how you feel. Well, you know, that's how, that works for Steve. Uh, but he's tremendously prolific by nature. And I'm rather the opposite. Uh, Steve can actually sit down and write 20,000 words, just typing like a son of a bitch. And I can actually type, I can actually write maybe 250. And I I do that, however, without having a computer in front of me. I write with a fountain pen. Interesting. That's incredible. So some of the the best sci-fi books of our era, at least, have been written with a fountain pen. Yeah, well, I would hope to think so. (laughs) It's, uh, It's not just a quirk. I think it's deeply ingrained. I, I remember sitting and watching my mother write with a fountain pen when I was like three years old, just fascinated with the process. And so there's sort of a 60, 65, almost 70 year uh, long fascination with the process of making a line of ink on paper. For you, when did it become uh, a passion or obsession? How did you get into writing and into specifically futuristic topics? Well, I've always written. I really have. I uh, I started writing uh, comics, comic books when I was, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years old. And I would uh, write these absurdly long comics and my mother would bind them with a stapler. <laughs> so I would have my little comic books. And uh, I guess when I was just in college, I guess when I was 18, 17, 18 years old, is when I started writing more seriously fiction for the purpose of publication. And then I don't know, I... I uh, College took over, and most of my energies went to physics and astronomy for a few years. And then I was drafted, and I wrote home every day. Uh, I mean, in longhand, of course. And that sort of started uh, the the long habit of writing. As some people, somebody said, I I uh, I would feel uncomfortable if I didn't have some time during the day to write every day. And if you can write in a war zone, you can write anywhere. I imagine. Well, you know, in a way, it may be easier to write in a war zone than sitting in a comfortable house. Oh, somebody wrote about that. This guy who, uh, now I have a bad name for writers. I've got a bad memory for writers' names. But a fellow who was on the police force and wrote a huge bestseller, and he bought a uh, 
house in Malibu overlooking the Pacific Ocean and, you know, had a staff and everything like that. And he couldn't write a word. He had to go back to his job, uh, just pounding a beat uh, for the police before he could write again. Partly this is, you know, the persistence of habit. But I think there's something more important at stake. I think it has to do with one's self-image and uh, what one actually enjoys doing or what one does in order to fulfill one's own self. And what is that for you? I think it's making a line of ink on paper with miles and miles long with no end in sight. And 20,000 years worth of, of content <laughs> and information. How do, you, how do you act and think so creatively? So a lot of your, I mean, you've written a ton and all of your stories are very much, they're, they're far out future. You have to be creative and envisioned yet also realistic. How do you do it? Well, not all of them are futuristic. In fact, not all of them are science fiction or fantasy. And I suspect that uh, that particular aspect of my writing is not uh, that important. I enjoy writing anything. I really do. And uh, if it has spaceships and aliens and stuff like that, well, okay. I mean, I've been doing that since I was a little boy. If it doesn't have spaceships and aliens, it may be a more mature kind of writing because uh, it'd be from a later intellectual period of my life. Uh, you know, I, I don't mind writing about just playing people or even extraordinary people who live in the real here and now. Uh, but it's not the way that I grew up creating. I grew up creating fantastic things that uh, don't have a lot to do with reality. And I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> That's my reality. I think, I, think uh, I wonder what it's like to be in Stephen King's head. I mean, he must live in a very uncomfortable planet most of the time. And it comes through beautifully. My own planet is sort of, uh, I think, rather ordinary, and uh, I, I seek out extraordinary things to write about. And sometimes I go out and do things, extraordinary things, I think, probably that I, some of them I shouldn't be doing, I suppose. <laughs> That's the nature of life, though. I think you undersell, I think you undersell your, your success and importance. One thing that I've found with a lot of the folks that we have on, we have the smartest and most influential folks and thought leaders when it comes to science, research, the future, AI, genetics, space travel. The vast majority of them have been inspired in some way, shape, or form by sci-fi. Whether or not the technology was possible when the authors dream it up, it becomes something that technologists and nerds, they go for it. They try to figure out how can we make faster than light travel? How can we make personal computing possible? How do we do this and this and this? These things that they've read about. Do you think about any of that at all when you're writing? Well, no, I don't think an internal combustion engine thinks very much about the about burning gasoline. <laughs> it's just very normal. It's, it's part of life. Yeah, I, uh, I think ideas are the fuel, but you don't know where they come from. And it's very difficult to generate them. You can't, there's not some war dance that always works and you come up with an idea every day or every hour or whenever. Uh, in fact, it'd be less fun if you could do it predictably. I think life might be a little easier, but uh, be less interesting. But you read a lot of science magazines. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I read a lot about science. And uh, partly that's just natural fascination with science. But there's also the, the sense of uh, fueling the machine, getting stuff to write about. But then I also read poetry and I read regular straight fiction. And, and I read literature with a small L, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm like, I'm like normal like most science fiction readers, you know, most of us are not absolutely allergic to reading stuff that isn't science fiction. It's just that we find science fiction more interesting than the rest of it. Because it lets you be a kid and be creative and think about what ifs. Yeah, in a way, I'm, I'm reaching over here and say, well, what am I reading right now? Oh, yeah, this is a book that a friend gave me, The Universe Around Us. 
<laughs> by Sir James Jeans. It's a, an astronomy text from 1930, and it's just another world. It's a, a kind of interesting, I guess, meta science fiction to me. It's a, where did we all come from in our little planet here? I mean, the planet of science fiction writing and reading. How often but, do you think about those existential questions? Well, <laughs> I don't get paid for existential, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I think maybe at some subconscious level, I'm profoundly involved with existential problems and questions, but not at a level where you can write down, uh, let's see now, what am I thinking about? What am I working on? What am I doing today? It very rarely has an ex- existential answer. Uh, it's usually within the matrix of a story that I'm working on or a character who's more or less fascinating to me. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> sometimes I try to think of some time in my life when I was profoundly involved in existential problems. And I had to go back to undergraduate work and say, you know, well, yes, you had to articulate things uh, on an existential level and, and hand them in for a grade. But when that ended, it ended. I, uh, I'm, I'm not terribly fascinated by completely abstract problems. So for you, for you, it's more of a process. What's your process look like? Get up in the morning and work. It's been that way for a long time. I mean, I don't have anything else to do other than be a writer. So that's what I do. Do you have, do you have set targets or milestones? How do, you, how do you think about that? I know for some people, just a, a blank sheet of paper can be overwhelming. Yeah, that's true. And I feel sorry for them. I can always do something. Well, I don't know. I've got a, I don't have any rules, but I do have certain habits that seem to reinforce themselves. Like I, I've almost always had to mix physical exercise with the actual intellectual work. Like this morning, I, as soon as it was light enough, I went out on my bicycle and just rode around the neighborhood for about a half an hour. That's normal for getting the day going, you know. And then I can sit and drink coffee and not feel like too much of a toad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like to, like to be a little bit physically aware. I, sometimes I, I have difficulty walking, so I can unlimber my cane and walk around the neighborhood and scare little children and that sort of thing. <laughs> Here comes the boogeyman with a cane. Get out of my face, you tiny little asshole. But, <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, I prefer being on a bicycle. It feels better. And also I've got a, a tremendously expensive bike now. I, I bought a uh, uh, recumbent uh, about a year and a half ago and I pedal around on that and I feel all very, you know, Buck Rogers, Buck Rogers in the 21st century. And you go, oh, but wait, it is the 21st century. Well, okay. Uh, but it is a very futuristic looking conveyance. And uh, I, have, uh, I get a kick out of just tootling around the neighborhood and, uh, and scaring children and dogs. You know, that's, dogs really, really get uh, frightened. And, and, you know, they don't come running after you because they're afraid of you. They really are afraid. And I'm pedaling along and there's dogs that would have frightened me when I was a child. They go, <laughs> Listen, dog, if you come near me, I will make a high-pitched sound that will blow your brain. And, and they, sort of agree, they sort of know that they're to be afraid of me. It's, it's quite different from when I was a child and was, was afraid of dogs. You know, living in Alaska, as I did, dogs were sometimes profoundly large and ferocious. You know, sled dogs and that kind of thing. And uh, I was, I was uh, really afraid of them. And it was part of my everyday life. Because we had had people, we had had school children mauled and uh, really, uh, well, a couple of people killed by dogs. 
is people will raise, back in those days, people would raise sled dogs to be extremely competitive and very ferocious, and uh, they would get loose. And without a leader, without a matrix, a social matrix to work in, those dogs were just wild beasts. Yeah. Ooh. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy how the past influences the future, and yet life is so much about the kicks, what you learn, and how you change. Yeah, yeah. It's about the kick. You got to... What I get a kick out of is uh, I just got a new fountain pen. <laughs> and man, that is more fun. I just make keep making lines with it. <laughs> you know, I'm not just writing, but also drawing and, and just enjoying the way ink works with it. It's a rather expensive uh, fountain pen. I, I, it, uh, I find it, it costs a third as much as I got for my first novel. So yeah, it's kind of an expensive fountain pen. Didn't you write your first novel with a pen name or a couple of your early ones? No, I wrote two uh, with a pen name because it was required. These were, you want a piece of uh, really professional jargon. It was a house name, not a pen name, because it was a character that somebody else had come up with. And they wanted to hire writers to do, I don't know, a dozen or so books about this adventure character. And so you couldn't use your own name. They generated the name Robert Graham. And I said, wow, yeah, that's classy. That's a, a poet's name. And they, they didn't know what to say about that. They said, well, you know, we thought it was sounded like a classy name. <laughs> well, yeah, it was classy. So I used it for two novels. And then I got really, really tired of the exercise of writing as if I were someone else. I started a third novel and never finished it. How do you it's, get into yeah. that mindset? How do you get into the mindset of when you're writing? I imagine every story takes a bit of a different mindset. I know you see, at least in acting, you have actors that are method actors and they suddenly become crazy or do whatever the character would do to yeah. be able to live that. How do you do that? It's a mystery, isn't it? I, I don't know. I've met people who literally are like that. Is become a different person for the time they were writing. And I can't understand that. You know, it's like, uh, I think I can understand method acting because I have seen it explained and demonstrated. And you've seen it in action. Whereas nobody watches a writer while he's performing. I mean, an actor being a method actor is a different thing than a writer being a method actor. A writer is performing in the dark without anybody overseeing what he's doing. And the result may or may not be strange compared to the writer's everyday life. But I, I met the, you know, I was just reading a, one of the obits about Harlan Ellison. And I guess he's as close to a method actor sensibility as I've known in a writer. But then he was kind of a weird performer guy. Now, he was on stage a lot. And I almost never am. I mean, when I'm, I do a lot of science fiction convention talking and panels and guest of honor gigs and things like that. But I'm always just myself. I don't have a persona to put on. Uh, I've, you know, there are fewer and fewer of those people nowadays, I think. There, we, yeah, we used to be a wild and woolly bunch. <laughs> <laughs> we sci-fi guys, you know. Ah, they don't make them like that anymore. You know, they just, they have a machine that drops them out on a conveyor belt every <laughs> 18 hours. Thunk, here comes another writer. It's a horrible thing to watch. I was just going to ask, how do you see the, the change in writing, authorship, and I mean, I guess you could say education in broader sense, just society. Well, the predicate behind that is uh, that I would know anything about science fiction nowadays. And really, I don't. I, uh, I'm the same kind of a worker I was 50 years ago. And that means I write every day. And I, after I've got enough for a book, I kind of try to get the most money for it I, as I can. I don't think I would be writing very much differently if I was writing in the 18th century. 
<laughs> I probably would have to make my own ink, uh, but I've done that, you know, and uh, I was never very good at making ink, but I've tried a couple of formulas and, and you know, they, they make a line on paper. I've, I've tried whittling my own pens too, and that's more difficult. That's sloppy as hell. <laughs> that would sound miserable. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually wired my own computer once. I started out with an Apple, uh, Apple II. And actually, before that, I had a couple of other primitive computers. And I had to solder together an addition to one of the computers so I could get lower case. <laughs> and that was really mind-blowing. You know, suddenly, I could write things that didn't just scream out in all caps. And it was a uh, profound transformation. <laughs> And it, it was, you know, like a $75 investment. And, ooh, and I got to use a solder gun and burn my fingers and the whole thing, you know. So I felt all very, you know, almost 20th century. And it's really futuristic. <laughs> we need to get that for everyone on social media, constantly screaming at each other. Yeah. Let's <laughs> use some lowercase. I want to I jump into, into some of the themes more of your books now and just looking at the essentially process that you have. So you studied in university, a very scientific background. And then you started when with uh, when with the sci-fi books, and then how do you how do you research? How do you think about topics, technologies, etc.? What's that process look like? Because most people have no idea. Well, usually it's kind of backwards. I mean, the the story will suggest or demand that you learn something in order to write it in a convincing way. Sometimes I think, well, okay, I'm going to write the next books set in the asteroid belt, and so I read up on asteroids. But it's actually not much more profound than that. You uh, you have to know some background about what you're writing, but you often don't know what you're going to be writing until you actually get into the story. Hey, Matt here, a quick timeout. I just wanted to outline the similarities between the art of authorship and the discipline of entrepreneurship, of building a business and creating something. Too many times in life, people try to know exactly what path their life, their business, their career will take. This is just not how the world works. There's too much randomness. And preparing too much can be just as bad as not preparing at all. A Boy Scout being always prepared is not the best business when it comes to entrepreneurship because the world is infinitely full of education opportunities and you will never run out. I like what Joe does here. He comes up with what he wants to create and then figures out how the hell do I do this? He learns the ins and outs of the science, the technology, and the storyline so that he's able to create the overall arc of the story. This is something that entrepreneurs and professionals everywhere should really focus on. Don't learn what you need to do before you need to do it. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time. And now let's jump back to Joe. And so you, in, my, in my case, it's pretty well divided between morning and afternoon because uh, I do the creative work in the morning. And if there's something that I don't know that belongs in the story, I use a highly scientific method of leaving that blank. <laughs> you know, and then I come back in the afternoon after I've looked it up and I make myself some notes and then I, uh, I insert it and just go to page you know, 28 and slap this in there. I guess uh, my, my manuscripts are a little bit uh, pasted together, not like some people. I mean, I've seen people's manuscripts that just look like a, a terrible mess of a teenage scrapbooker, but uh, I do have things pasted in and, and notes to go to some other book and copy that out, things like that. What technologies do you find come up the most in your books? In the production of the books? No, not in the production, more oh, so in the storylines. Yeah, storyline, uh, usually it's space travel or artificial intelligence, or uh, non-human life. And those all come together in a kind of a Venn diagram of, that uh, sort of defines where my fictive interests are. Yeah, like I would be not hurt at all if they passed a law saying you can't put zombies in your stories. I mean, I wouldn't even notice. 
<laughs> but uh, if they said you can't put space travel in your stories, I would sort of be walking around outside going, well, now what do I do now? <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I can, if you, if you hire me to write a zombie story, I will write you a zombie story. I mean, after all, it is a job. But people don't usually knock on my door and say, got a hot zombie story for the kids. You know? <laughs> if they did, I would write it more often. Genetic editing gone awry. Suddenly consciousness right. goes away. That's right. It's a, yeah. well, that's, that's, ex- that's very close to it. I mean, yeah, I can write a zombie story if the zombie's in a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> do you, when you go outside, do you look up at the sky? I did this morning. Yeah, what do you think about? Mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, let me see. Uh, yeah, but I look at the sky with the spirit of an amateur astronomer of, I don't know, almost 70 years. So when I go to the, when I step outside, I automatically look for the key stars, planets, and constellations, and so forth. And I, I sort of, I, I go out with a, <laughs> almost an editor's eye. I say, okay, now how bad is the sky this morning? And is it going to get better? Like this morning, it was really, really bad, and the clouds were starting to grow in the east, and some planet, well, Jupiter, I suppose, was uh, was setting over there, and I'm going. You know, I could haul a telescope out because I've got a couple that are uh, portable enough that I can take them out in the morning. But I thought, you know, I'm not going to. I think I'll make breakfast instead. <laughs> that often happens, but just as often not. I uh, I love observing the planets and stars in the morning. And there's a f- special sense of nobody else is awake, you know. This is my show. I can go out and just point this telescope anywhere and... I don't have a, an audience to satisfy. I don't have anything but sense of wonder to uh, deal with. And, well, I'm, I'm a grown-up, and I have been a grown-up since I was about 10. And so I'm much more comfortable if I have a, uh, a sketchbook and I can make notes and make drawings that show that I have been not completely wasting my time. Not that anybody will ever publish the drawings or care, but uh, I guess that's part of my work ethic. Uh, this is a really personal note that I wanted to highlight. I know I too struggle from what Joe is describing here, that feeling, that sense that you need to be productive. If you're not doing, then what is your purpose for being? Joe feels it. All of us feel it at times. I think it's important that despite his prolific success, he understands this about himself and yet is able to get outside and explore his imagination, looking up into the sky, exploring the stars, and yet still able to justify that to himself. Being productive is important, but so too is being creative, being purposeful, and being passionate. Something many of us struggle with, and it's just an aside that I wanted to add. You don't always have to have a purpose. You do always have to do the thing that matters most to you. Now let's jump back to Joe. It's Astronomy is, uh, I won't say it's more serious than writing, but it has to do with things that are larger than the individual. Writing is... Uh, pretty selfish, pretty, uh, well, it's about Joe, you know, and when I'm taking out a telescope and deciding what to look at and then observing it, making my drawings and such, it's not about Joe, it's about Jupiter, who's, who doesn't give a shit about Joe, <laughs> he just reels through the sky up there. I think you missed the bigger picture, though. I, I would say your work has definitely inspired people to go out and try bigger, better, and more important things. I so think I- that, yeah, that's, you might, you might not give yourself enough credit in that case. Well, I'm afraid that I've run into too many people who give themselves a lot of credit. <laughs> and so I sort of don't want to be one of those. <laughs> can't, can't blame you at all. What would you say, but let's say you've written a lot of books. Let's look at the ones that are more future focused. How realistic in your opinion are they? Well, they're realistic in, in that they're not immediately absurd. 
unless they're meant to be absurd. I have written that venue too. Realistic, well, we're talking about the future. We're talking about alternative realities and everything. They're realistic in that people can't suddenly sit up and say, that couldn't happen or that's stupid. The fact that something hasn't happened doesn't mean it couldn't, of course. That's what the whole business is about. But uh, yeah, a lot of it, especially if you're getting kind of wild-eyed science fiction fantasy, a lot of what you do is making sure it isn't stupid. You know, you can go really far out. You can write about the most absurd and impossible sounding things. But if you do it with skill, then it's amusing. It's not, uh, it's not risable. And, you know, it's just, a, it's a skill that you, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be a science fiction writer. It's just automatic. The art of the plausibility, especially yeah. with, the, with the futuristic stuff that's important. Yeah, well, it's true in all of realistic fiction in a way. You know, it's, it's about making the people act in a way that's both plausible and interesting. You know, writing stuff that is just plausible is pretty boring. <laughs> okay, here's another day. I'm going to go punch the time clock and try not to fall asleep on the job. <laughs> yeah, you, you, can't write about, you can't write about the average American. It becomes, it becomes a little boring at times. So what I, what I want to ask you, you look up in space, you've written a lot about alien civilizations. What are your thoughts? Are, are there other civilizations out there? Are we alone? I, obviously, we don't have proof, but... Yeah, well, it'd be interesting if you could prove that we were alone. That would be interesting philosophically. I mean, how could you? How on earth could you do that? I think, uh, yeah, if if you work with the idea, the predicate that yes, we are alone in the universe. Oh God! And suddenly, the <laughs> we have thunder and lightning, just as I said that. Ugh. Boss, be right out. I've been expecting you. No, God, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that at all. If you get smited down during this, we're totally going to publish it and try to get the thunder back <laughs> yeah. in. And there was nothing left at uh, Joe Haldeman's residence but a, a wisp of smoke. You always were funny. I don't know. I think uh, I write as if there were no such thing as a supreme being or any such thing as, uh, as cosmic rules imposed on human behavior. Now, if somebody walked, in, walked through my door, say, without it opening, and said, there is a God, and I can prove it. I go, okay, so I better stop thinking the way I have been thinking. But it hasn't happened yet. And, you know, back in the 19th century, people would, you could actually make a living by hiring a public hall and saying, I defy God to strike me down here. Uh, there is no God, and I can prove it. And I'm, I'm holding a lightning rod right now and pointing it up toward the heavens. Come on, God, strike me down. And, you know, back before there was television, I guess you could entertain people that way. They say, oh, look, look, look. Times are Should changing. Should we take cover? How do, you th <laughs> how do you think about them from your perspective, where we're headed so, as a society, some of the pros, some of the cons? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know where the cons are. I mean, we've got one in charge right now. I think uh, questions about society, I've had to sort of revamp my thinking over the past few years, very few years, because of the, I don't know, the, uh, the, the almost absurd kind of level of criminality and uh, and incompetence at the highest level of government. I mean, you have to be doctrinaire and not thinking very clearly to deny that, uh, you know, the, the villains and the idiots are more or less in charge of the asylum. Why so serious? Why so serious? Let's put a smile on that face. And the way we deal with that is the way ordinary people have dealt with it since the time of the mad Mesopotamians. <laughs> you just try not to get in their way, and you try to have a decent life. You try to just let the steamroller go by and not get in its way. Yeah, 
it makes it so society doesn't change because we're all just trying to which both works and doesn't work let's let's pull that back yeah are we all we're all human (laughs) and yet that's one thing i wanted to ask you about so in your book oh are we that's a whole nother question where we have some lizards but um in terms of in terms of possible alien civilizations how do you think about that as an author in terms of war peace motivations game theory etc uh and the a universe that didn't have any possibility of uh, alien life, or alien is a bad word, actually, life on other planets, would be a very boring civil, uh, boring universe to live in. So I think that just because my profession demands that the world keep getting more and more interesting, it also demands that it not be limited to humans doing very silly, mundane things <laughs> within a regular lifespan. Do you think we'll ever evolve beyond those silly and mundane things? I think we have. In a way, I don't think that we're going to wake up one day and say, oh, hey, suddenly we're supermen. Look at this. No, I think we're almost there in a way. The amount of control that the average human being in our civilization has over the environment is pretty impressive, actually. I mean, I'm sitting here high and dry, and the sky is emptying itself over there. And I've got artificial light. I've got artificial intelligence right here at my fingertips working for me the way an ox did a few generations ago. And in exactly the same way, it will do what I ask it to. And I don't even have to whip it, you know, but I do have to learn the special language like gee and ha made the machine go left and right back in the old days. Now I've got uh, a rather more sophisticated set of commands, but it's still making the machine do work for me. People of Uh Oh, and here comes another machine. Oh no, (laughs) that machine is ringing in the corner. Uh, fortunately, my my uh, robot assistant is taking it off to another. <laughs> I need to get one of those robot assistants. So, what I want to ask you about now is, you've written so many books. Which is your favorite, and why? Well, my favorite is the Hemingway hoax because it was so much fun, and it just hit me like a well, like a lightning bolt. I say without looking outside, <laughs> but it was. I actually, uh, I know exactly the minute I thought of the book because I was. Uh, a friend had, or uh, one of my students had taken us to the airport. We were going down to New Zealand or Australia, I guess. And so we had this long plane flight in front of us. And I was kind of thinking about what to do on the plane and la, la, la. So I went off to the men's room. And on my way back, I thought of this story. You know, what if somebody found Hemingway's lost manuscripts? And what if he tried to, you know, uh, tried to use that as a and tried to make some money out of it. And then I thought, well, no, what if he just, he made it, what if he acted like he had, what if he wrote the fake manuscripts himself and managed to make the make them seem real? And by the time I sat back down, I had the novel half written in my head because once you have the, you know, the basic idea, there are just various ways to go with it. And I, you know, I sat down, I started writing it on the plane and uh, we stopped uh, at Heron Island in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the Pacific, South Pacific. And I wrote there, and I was just scribbling like a mad creature, writing it all down. And uh, it was actually, by the time we settled down in uh, New Zealand, I had the whole thing mapped out. And it was just, you know, this doesn't happen very often. If it did, everybody would write for a living. Because <laughs> it was so easy and so fun. But normally it's not that way. Normally it's kind of difficult to come up with the next page. Says the guy who does this for a living and has over 30 books. How do you process? How do you, what is the process for laying out that 
story arc, once you have the creative inspiration, because this is something that I think a lot of people struggle with, not necessarily as writers, but in terms of they have a big idea, but how do you get there? Well, this might be the difference between people who do it for a living and people who don't, because I don't need an idea. Honestly, what I need is a piece of paper and a pen. And the ideas will come, they'll come to my pen. I mean, it's a mystical process. It's not, uh, it's not like, oh, yeah, if I just drink a amount of coffee, I'll suddenly do it. Oh, I did, I did try this once. I read this thing in New Scientist about uh, they did this big, uh, I think this was in Britain rather than America, but they did a, a survey among people they identified as creative. And they gave them a little worksheet. Every hour, you're supposed to write down a line or two about how you feel in terms of creation. Is it going to be easy? Is it not? And having difficulty and so forth. And they had the people take their blood pressure and their blood chemistry regularly and coordinate that with how they felt. And it turned out that uh, when your blood sugar maximized and when your blood temperature maximized, that was when you found it most easily easy to create. And so I thought, well, that's easy. Now all you have to do is drink some orange juice in the morning and stay warm. And, <laughs> and so for about, a, I don't know, most of a year, I'd start out every morning with a shower as hot as I could stand it. And I'd drink a pint of orange juice. And then I'd sit down with a strong coffee laced with honey. And it worked. You know, I, <laughs> I, I rode like a son of a bitch. But I think it was unrelated. After a while, I realized, well, you know, you can't just keep doing this. You will have diabetes and die <laughs> or something. <laughs> but uh, but it's, worth, it's worth thinking about. You can tweak your, your body to be more creative. Uh, but finally, this, this leads to a whiskey bottle or a, a needle full of cocaine. And then you've got, you know, you've really got control then. And uh, we all know about writers and artists who went that way. I think uh, one of the greatest examples I've ever known was not a writer, but an artist who was a very successful science fiction artist who, although he didn't tell anybody during his lifetime, some of his friends knew, that he had to be blind drunk. You would think a person who makes a living with a brush couldn't get drunk while he was working. And you would be so wrong because he, got, he would get to where he couldn't really walk across the room, but he could handle a brush with tremendous dexterity. And he was not affected at all by tiredness, by the hour, by anything. Well, he had a wife who actually helped him. I guess she's an enabler in everyday terms nowadays. But she made, you know, looked out for him and made sure he had his booze, made sure he had this and that. And he did fine for, I don't know, 30 years, maybe 40 years. He finally uh, succumbed to it, but uh, you know how long? <laughs> what a what a terrible tragedy that somebody does something for forty years that helps him, <laughs> and then uh, after his life, you can go ahead and decide he he might have been a better person if he didn't drink, smoke, take dope. But we would not have the work that he did. I've uh, I've been forced by my own doctor and physicians and and spouses all, yeah. You know, all conspiring to make sure that I'm a healthy individual. And, you know, if I had actually indulged in drink and dope and cigarettes and things like that to the extent that I wanted, I would not be 75 years old and talking to you. <laughs> I'd be moldering someplace for the past half century because, yeah, you know, that stuff will kill you. And, and you know, maybe after you're dead, it doesn't make a difference. And if it did help you produce more art, well, then arguably, arguably, it may have been the right thing to do. But yeah, try to tell your wife that. <laughs> yeah, try. 
<laughs> it's like the it's like the flip side of the Elon Musk syndrome of almost going bankrupt or going bankrupt several times, being living on the factory floor, trying to produce, produce, produce because of this insane need to create something. It's not necessarily good for him. It's not necessarily good for you or good for the artist, but occasionally it's good for society. Well, that's true. And if you could wave a magic wand and get rid of all of the books and all of the art that uh, required mental disability and uh, addiction to illegal substances and, and bad practices, if you could just get rid of them all, we would not have very much well, we'd have a lot of spare room in the libraries and art galleries and things. I mean, you could actually fill them up with used cars and sell them. And even worse, absolutely no music on the radio. I imagine that's even worse in that industry. Yeah, you know, that's, that's the most obvious one right there. I want to dive now into what we like to do when we get experts on. Everyone's an expert in something, but also very interested in other fields as well. So what industries, technologies, et cetera, are you most excited or fascinated with? Well, obviously astronomy, which is not... Uh, not involved in my work uh, every day. Astronomy is a passion since childhood. I, uh, and as I've said, I'm also sort of unhealthily addicted to the technologies of writing. I love fountain pens. I love computers. You know, I love to go through, a, go into a stationary store and look at all the different kinds of paper they've got and all the colors of ink. And you, you can go crazy that way, especially if you have some money. <laughs> you can spend it all on paper. Uh, yeah, I. I don't know if uh, if I had control over my enthusiasms, <laughs> I would not be able to be enthusiastic the way I am about the few things that I uh, that I'm addicted to and fascinated by. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess most of the writers and artists I know tend to have strong pet predilections, one way or another. Sometimes socially, uh, well, difficult ones. You can't say, for instance. I mean, it's easy to say. One shouldn't take illegal substances and put them in one's veins. I mean, who would ever counsel you to do that? Well, what if that's the only way you can create what you create? That's a dangerous line of reasoning because everybody, every teacher and preacher and everything you've ever known says, don't go there. I mean, surely, surely you can create without screwing up your body and influencing the people around you to do the same thing. Well, I'm sorry, but... Uh, I've met lots of people who are extremely creative only under the most uh, deleterious of lifestyles. And that's just the way it goes. Is this uh, cause and effect? Probably not. It probably isn't. Because I've known enough writers and artists who were able to quit their bad habits cold and just keep working. So it's not a, not a simple question. It's not exactly a moral question either. The problem is when you convince yourself that you need it. You might not actually need it, but the placebo effect makes it feel like you do. I know in, in colleges, you see the stats now, and it's 20, 25% of kids that are on Ritalin or some type of ADD drug so they can focus and work harder and be more productive, so to speak. Not really creative in any way, but at least more focused. Yeah. Yeah. That's very sad. Uh, but I, you know, I can't say because I never took one of those. If I, if I had written books on Ritalin, I would probably be a real Ritalin sympathizer. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a crazy. I, um, let's talk about some predictions now. So you've made plenty of bold, not necessarily predictions, but futures in your previous books. Give me a, give me a 10 and a 20 year out prediction for what you see the world, where we're headed, a technology, something happening, et cetera. No, a technology that's kind of, Hmm. That becomes, well, like, uh, why don't we have useful electric cars for everyone? That's a technology that's been old hat since I was young. 
Well, the reason we don't have it is there's not enough money in it compared to gasoline burning cars. So that's a, an easy answer to a difficult question and not a complete answer. But okay, that's one. The other here's a here's a real obvious one. Everybody knows that all men are brothers. And everybody knows that the world would be easier to operate in if we all treated each other as brothers and sisters. And if everybody knows this, why don't we do it? I mean, really, why don't we do it? Quite uh, thinking not in terms of right and wrong and so forth, but in terms of efficiency and getting the world on the rails, making everything work. Why can't we do that? You know, you can write books about why, but you still, for instance, if you're raising children, how can you convince them? Say, you know, you're surrounded by evidence that people who act in a criminal way, the people who act in a totally selfish way, survive and thrive. So how can I teach you to not act the way yourself without looking stupid? Well, big old problem. I don't have any children to experiment with myself, <laughs> but uh, sometimes I wish I had. It's the tragedy of the commons. One thing that I've seen that was really interesting, I think it was Cal Newport, but it was some author and he wrote a big book that more or less focused on how everyone was actually connected and looking at the genetic tie-ins between different different groups and then set up large-scale family reunions. They were ridiculously large-scale because it was your second, 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 second cousin. But just by, just by reaching out to people and saying, hey, I'm the brother of your wife's second cousin, third removed, he was able to talk to people like Mark Zuckerberg, Obama, folks of that nature. And that'd be interesting if you genetically sequenced everyone and told everyone exactly how they were related to others. That could... Uh, it is, I, I, I'm sure you've seen that television program where they do that with two famous people you know, and say, although you know, you're know you a black man from Nigeria and you're an Asian woman from Hong Kong, back in the fourth generation back, you were uh, snogging together. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I can't remember the name of that program, uh, but it's a, it's a beautiful demonstration of that. Oh, the... Uh, <laughs> And the guy who is the master of ceremonies is a famous actor, and I can't think of his name either. He's a professor. Oh, professor, okay. Oh, uh, Henry Louis Gates. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what's the name of the show? I can't think. Hmm. Henry Louis Gates. We'll look, we'll look it up and throw links in the show notes. But yeah, it's a, yeah. when you can convince, when you can, not convince people, when you can show people how connected they are, it's hard to be hateful to someone you're related to, except, yeah, except yeah. for at the dinner table. Except relatives. <laughs> um, who, when you were growing up, what authors, sci-fi authors, etc., did you look up to? What inspired you? Well, I really loved Heinlein, Clark, Asimov, you know, the big three. And Bradbury crept in there, too. And I think somewhere around puberty, Bradbury raised his ugly head. May I say that? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was uh, very ordinary in terms of science fiction fandom in the way I grew up. Uh, in terms of literary interests. I've, I'm unusual a little bit for my generation in that I was uh, bitten by Olaf Stapleton early on, and he didn't even have his own teeth, you know. No, <laughs> <laughs> Stapleton was an early and uh, striking influence. And maybe an unusual part of that is he's, he was only a library book to me, or a set of library books. And all the others I was reading in, you know, old yellow paperbacks and and science fiction magazines and so forth. But Stapleton actually came creeping out of the library and saying, here, little boy, oh, I'll show you something really interesting. <laughs> would you make sci-fi or some type of, what would you change about the education system currently? Oh, boy, that would be hard. I'm afraid that I've, I'm too intimately associated with the educational system to pretend that I know anything about it. <laughs> I mean, what can I say? I, uh, my own education proceeded best when I was left alone. And yet I know that 
if you leave most students alone, they won't do shit. So what do you say? Should we only educate the people who are most uh, amenable to education? Should we try to make a few geniuses and and let everybody else just uh, sort of live their lives without any special uh, accomplishment associated with them? Well, no. We should, of course, make opportunity for everybody who can go grow in that direction. And of course, we should take care of the others and make sure that they can take care of themselves and so forth. But we all want something more interesting, you know? I think this is one of the uh, one of these way one of the ways real nutcases get into power. They say, you know, it's obvious that uh, blah blah blah. You know, if people would only eat vegetables, you know, nothing else, and be kind to animals, and people who don't eat vegetables and are mean to animals, we just take them out and shoot them because we don't need them. And believe me, the world will be a much better place for the ones who are left. And I'm going, uh, hmm, that may be true, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we want to go there. Well, so what do <laughs> I'm not sure what started this uh, strange direction. I think because this, the sun came out. The, the tangents are always interesting. I know there's a book, um, the one of Dan Brown's recent ones, Inferno, looking at the possibility of a, a genius starting a, a biotechnological plague, essentially wiping out parts of humanity. And the question is, if you knew in 100 years that 50% or if you knew in 100 years, there was 100% certainty that humanity would wipe itself out. But if we were at half the population, we would survive. Would you be willing to kill 50% of the population today? And it's those type of ethical questions that people can't really answer. But we might need to start talking more about as we move into an era of exponential technology problems and issues. Yeah, definitely worth talking about and voting about. And voting about, ideally voting slightly more directly than we do now. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one thing that I, I wanted to ask you is, if you had unlimited funding, what problem would you focus on in the world? Unlimited funding. I guess it would be starvation, even though that affects only a, maybe one-third, maybe one-fourth of the world's population. It's an outstanding moral problem. And every bite that you take of food that's not absolutely necessary for your own survival is taken from people who need it for survival. It's just a, you know, the most common denominator moral problem that's sitting in front of us. We throw away like 50% of our food just because it goes bad. It's an incredibly, it's an incredibly large problem and one that humanity has been too stupid logistically to solve, which is quite interesting. Yeah. Or too not caring. Yeah, not caring. That's probably better. That's probably better than too stupid. I know there are people working on these problems and that they are more complex than we make them seem. But at the same time, come on. If Amazon can get you something there in an hour or in a day, I think you could probably do the same with food. One thing left that I wanted to leave everybody with, what challenge, what ask, what statement would you like to leave people with, action, et cetera, that you would want them to look into, take action on? To take action on. Well, I wish, you know, I, I want some pithy thing that I can put down in a short paragraph that everybody would say, my God, what a wise fellow he is. But, you know, I think it all comes down to the golden rule, or however you want to say it, uh, the categorical imperative. Uh, I like the categorical imperative. What if you could come up with a rule where if everybody followed it, everybody would be better off, and you could enforce that rule without anybody thinking you're doing anything wrong? Kant uh, could only go so far in the categorical imperative. I once had to learn it in German, <laughs> which, is, which somehow has not stuck to my neurons at all. But yeah. I think we all know that. I mean, most people who are not mentally ill and who are at even a low level of education 
understand that it's possible to solve all of the basic uh, physical problems of existence for everybody if we're all willing to make a sacrifice. And, you know, if you're not a hardcore Nazi, commie, et cetera, et cetera, whatever name calling you want to do, then you understand that. And you may or may not be willing to work toward it. I'm willing to work toward it, but I'm sort of a, you know, I'm an atheist, but I'm like the, uh, like the good Christian boy I was uh, brought up to be once. And uh, I think we all know that uh, if we were less selfish and if we understood everybody's life situation and could give to their benefit, uh, especially if to give in a relatively painless way, we would do it automatically. Raise your right hand if you want to stop starvation in the world. Well, okay, now, what are you doing with the other hand? Oh, <laughs> you're stealing other people's food. <laughs> well, sorry about that. It's a, it's a huge problem. I'm actually doing an episode where a little bit after this with Daniel Schmachtenberger looking at just that, the, the tragedy of the comments and how incentive structures misalign people with the rest of humanity because when no one loses a lot, everyone loses a little so that we all lose a lot, more or less. Very good. Yeah, that's, that's so true. Now, Joe, I know we've had you on here for a while. I know you're pretty busy and you have a, it's afternoon, so you've got a book to research, I think, at this point. Where's, where's the best place for people to find you and learn a little bit more about what you do? I always plug for the library. <laughs> That's where I am. I'm online, of course, like anybody. Facebook. Uh, I'm on Facebook, yeah. If anybody wants to ask me a question on Facebook, I go there at least once a week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more often, if, gay, if my wife finds something online that I should uh, pay attention to, she tells me, and I, like an obedient husband, I, I creep off and look at it. But I'm not, you know, I'm available. I, uh, I live in a cybernetically open universe. And I'm very easy to find. I mean, two clicks away at Google, and you can be at least talking to me on, you know, with a keyboard. And I'm very glad that worked for us. Yeah, yeah. That was a Facebook message. Oh, Gay says it was a Facebook. Yeah, it was, it was incredibly fortunate. It's a, it's part of the one, it's part of the one-two punch. Every, every great thing requires a team. <laughs> thanks so much, both of you guys, for coming on. Joe, Gay, thanks for taking the time. Always glad to do it. Yeah, we will talk to you guys again soon. Thanks for tuning in. If this has been fun, make sure to go and check out Joe's books. We've got a couple links in the show notes. There's quite a few really interesting ones. I like the Forever War, but plenty of choices. God, I can't wait to pay my taxes. Have you ever thought that? What about the government is such an efficient way of making the world a better place? I can't think of a single person who would make either of those statements. Well, there's good news. Did you know you could make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3, a nonprofit, a charity organization. That means that you can make a donation and write it off 100% on your taxes. And all of that goes towards our mission of making a better, more inclusive and abundant world. You can quite literally multiply the impact that we're able to create with a small donation. Please visit fringe.fm slash give if you care about our mission and work. And please consider supporting our efforts. You're quite literally deciding whether or not we can continue and how much of an impact we can make. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give to learn more and support our cause. Thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.